The Fanboy, episode 92. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 92 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, as always, I'm going to open today's show by doing a little bit of housekeeping. I got a new five-star review, so let's start with that, and then we got some fun stuff to discuss on today's show. So first things first, over on Apple Podcasts, Nick F78, I think I know who that is, Nick Farina, is that you, young man? Nick wrote, MFR delivers. He wrote, five stars, thank you, Nick. Uh, he wrote, been listening to Mario for around a year now, and it's always an entertaining and informative listen. He gives an honest opinion without trolling one side or the other, which is refreshing compared to others out there. We also will also throw in some nuggets of info that you haven't heard anywhere else. Keep doing you, Mario. Well, thank you, Nick. I plan on doing exactly that. Even when people yell at me, I plan on doing me. You know, because I, I got some feedback on last week's episode, and I and I felt bad for the gentleman who left me the feedback. But, you know, they, they, they don't like when I get personal. They don't like where, like, at the end of last week's episode, how I kind of transitioned into that chatter about Pete Holmes and the joy quota and all that sort of stuff. And I had to explain to them. I'm like, that's what this show is. This show is a personal show. And it's a combination of analysis and news, as well as what's going on you know, in the world through my filter. And sometimes when I talk about what's going on in the world through my filter, through my entertainment geeky brain, that involves me mentioning things that are going on personally with me. That's just what I do. And a lot of you seem to get it. Some of you don't. Like I've always said, if you want something that's strictly news and analysis and really sticks to that and doesn't really venture off into different territory, then the Revengers podcast is the best show for you. By the way, we just had arguably our best episode earlier this week. The feedback has been wonderful and it really just felt great. And it's making me like look at the format again and think about updating it like officially moving forward. Because one of the reasons that this week's Revengers worked so well was we really kind of threw the itinerary out the window halfway and just had a really cool open conversation. There were times where we butted heads. There was something that Vanessa said that made me see red. And I, you know, and, and you know, I, I came to Aquaman's defense. It's, it's silly stuff, but like that's what the Revengers was supposed to be. In my mind, I wanted that show when I conceptualized it to be like three passionate fans who are also friends for years having a conversation about these things that matter to them and spitballing ideas and arguing about how, you know, arguing respectfully about how they would have done something or, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Because I, I've, I always wanted it to feel like loose and fun and like you're talking to a few friends at the comic book shop and that you just to have that light, fun feel. And that's what this week's Revengers was. So if you have not yet checked out the most recent episode, which I believe was episode 46, I strongly recommend it. And especially if you want to talk about like the Snyder Cut stuff that happened over the weekend. Because, you know, last weekend was like that it's sort of informal Snyder Con show, you know, with the director's cuts. We talk about that a lot 
on episode 46 of The Revengers, and I will not really be touching on any of that here today. So if that's something you were hoping to hear me sound off on, I sound off on it a ton on this week's The Revengers. So I suggest you go dig up episode 46. But again, for those of you who were here for the fanboy, as usual, I'm going to give you your, your expected dose of geeky fun and insight, and then there might be a slight, you know, a little change up towards the end. But for now, let's talk some geek, shall we? Because this weekend, uh, this weekend, this morning, I should say, I published a little feature. It's not really a scoop per se. It wasn't some big in-depth report. It's literally just a section of a report that I eventually shelved. You know, and it's a report that I I had I, I put probably thousands of words into by that point until I decided to pull the plug and save it for later for something bigger than this. Um, but yeah, but it was paining me though that this really neat little timeline about Ben Affleck's, you know, tenure as Batman was kind of not, was, was going to go unseen because I thought the timeline itself was revealing. When I was proofreading that part of it, I'm like, it's funny, the timeline itself tells a story without me even having to like put a big intro and then flesh it out in some long in-depth report the timeline itself tells a story so this morning i published a report called batfleck the timeline more so just you know for those of you who obsess about this stuff like i do i figure this is something you can now use as a reference if you're ever talking about Batfleck and you kind of want to refer to like his history and the role and when he got it and, and the different ups and downs and the potential reasons that he ultimately exited, you know, the timeline I think will prove rather insightful and a, a good sort of handy thing to be able to refer to. Um, and then I just threw something in there at the end that I'd like to explore a little bit further here on the show today. Um... And I don't want to go too, too long on it because I feel like I talk Batman a lot on this show. And that, yeah, that's not a bad thing. We all love the Dark Knight. We all love good old Batsy. But, you know, this isn't strictly a Batman show. So I don't want like 80% of what I talk about to always be Bat related. All right. Maybe, maybe some of you would like that. and Maybe I should. But a part of me right now, my instinct is I still want to try to keep this show more, more open format and kind of broaden the scope as opposed to making it more and more specific every week. So, you know, if you guys have some feedback on that, please let me know. But for now, we're going to talk a little Batman, and then we're going to talk about some other stuff. So what came up while putting together the Batfleck timeline? Hang on a second. Coffee is your friend when you stay up till 2 in the morning, damn near every night playing Red Dead Redemption 2. But, um, anywho... Um, so the thing that came up while working on the timeline was that at the end of all this, I included a little PS. And at the end of the PS, I said, I didn't really include any Batman Matt Reeves stuff on the timeline. Because if there's something that I've sort of made peace with in the last month or two since Affleck's departure, and in, in, in several, you know, through several conversations I've had with different people behind the scenes, if there's something I've made peace with, it's this idea that Affleck was unlikely to ever do the Matt Reeves Batman movie. Yes, there was that little flirtation that I was not the only one to hear about last year. There was like that little, just a loose conversation about trying to see if there was a way to do the Affleck bookends and yada, 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 because cooler heads had prevailed. But by and large, 
one of the big theories that has that was thrown at me a few times from different independent behind the scenes insiders was that when Affleck dropped out when they announced at the beginning of 2017 in January that he had vacated the director's chair apparently that he was also vacating the cowl they just didn't want to announce it yet because Justice League was coming out 10 months later and to me, that is a very interesting story. It paints a very interesting picture. So I kind of want to just talk about that with you a second here today. Because if that's true, and I think it is, it, you know, I've heard a few different theories on the actual timeline of his departure, but something that's come up repeatedly was that behind the scenes, when he dropped out, he dropped out from everything. And the reason that's so notable is that that means that they went through with those Whedon reshoots and had him come back and do that all that extra additional work for Justice League already knowing that he was a lame bat, you know, that he was a lame duck Batman, that he would not be returning, and that for all intents and purposes, he'd already given up on this role. He literally did Justice League as almost like it was like part of like a barter. One way that I had it described to me was like a barter. We're like, okay, Ben, you want to leave. And we still have you on the hook for another appearance. And we've already invested time and energy into announcing your movie. So it's not great that you want to leave. But we recognize that you probably should leave. So here's the deal, Mr. Affleck. I'm the studio right now, by the way. If I were Be if I were Brett Miro from the Revengers podcast, I would be doing a killer Toby Emmerich right now, even though I don't think Toby Emmerich was even in the picture at this point, but I digress. The studio seemed to offer up as a compromise, well, okay, you want out, so how about this? If you play along with us and you participate in the reshoots, then we will let you go free of charge. You know, free of charge, without any penalties, we'll let you out of your contract, and we'll move on. If you were to just drop out now and leave us hanging with Justice League, then we'll ruin you. You know what I mean? It sounds more like extortion when you put it that way. But it feels like he agreed to do the reshoots as like a, okay, I will do these annoying reshoots as long as I'm done as Batman after this. So that seems to be like the agreement, the sort of handshake, sort of understanding between the two sides. Affleck wanted out 100%, but they convinced him, okay, we will let you out 100% after you complete the reshoots. So the reason that that's so like intriguing to me is that it explains so much about his performance in that movie. It explains why the Batman in Justice League is so night and day from the Batman in Batman v Superman. Because everyone talks about the writing, you know, right? You know, oh, yes, Whedon wrote him differently and so on and so forth. Yes, okay, tonally speaking, the Batman, you know, the, the, the two portrayals were very different. You are correct. But there was also a big difference in just overall energy and investment by Affleck. You could tell in BBS that he was very locked in, he really bought into this world, he really fully believed in this version of Batman, and he wanted to make this something special. And you know, and that's why he had Chris Dario come on and do his rewrite of the script and all that stuff. You know, he was invested, he had personal stakes in this. 
And then when you go look at Justice League, where like he can barely fit into his cowl because he's you know, he's gained some weight and he's not he didn't even bother getting back in shape in the few months that he had to prepare for these reshoots. When you see that he's just sort of like half-assing his lines and he seems less than enthusiastic to be there. When you even look at like the press tour, when the entire cast was going around the world advertising this movie. You know, people would talk about that fact that he seemed a little kind of out of it. He seemed like the grouchy old dad in the cast. Everyone else is excitable, jumping around, having a great time. And Ben Affleck was kind of like that jaded old veteran who was just over the process. And imagine, though, put yourself in Mr. Affleck's shoes. Imagine having to participate in this long, exhausting press tour traveling around the world to sell a movie that you already know is probably going to be a far cry from what you thought it could be. Yeah, and mind you, I'm not editorializing here. I'm not saying that I thought Justice League was good or bad. I'm saying in Affleck's eyes, based on things I've heard and based on other, you know, just based on things I've heard, Affleck and a lot of the other cast did not love that theatrical cut. But Affleck in particular did not like it and already knew he was gone. So imagine the awkwardness of having to sit there and sell this movie with a smile on your face and be asked all these questions about your next Batman movie and be asked all these questions about Matt Reeves and what that's going to be like, knowing full well that you're selling a movie that's half-baked and that you're talking about a role that you already gave up on 10 months ago, because you're over everything that's happened behind the scenes here. So when you think about that stuff, what Affleck, what he had to be going through mentally, through all of that, had to be pretty, you know, unique and pretty mentally strenuous. And, you know, to me, just that I find all of that fascinating, this idea that he went into these reshoots and the studio already knew it too, knowing this is it. No matter what we're going to say in public, no matter what we got to do at San Diego Comic-Con to sell tickets, no matter what happens here, I'm out already and I'm only doing these damn reshoots as, a, as part of an obligation so that I don't leave the studio hanging and they don't mess with my career. So, you know, it's just, it's a fascinating and messy situation and it's something that's come up to me in these last two months since he officially vacated the role because now that, you know, there are certain people now who were being very tight-lipped before his departure who are now being a lot more loose-lipped because they realized, well, now we can tell you the truth because he's gone. So what trouble can this really stir? It's all in the past. So people are you know, sharing the, the, this stuff with me and I just find it endlessly fascinating. And, you know, please, if you feel... I don't know, if you feel compelled to write about this or talk about this anywhere, please note that I'm only, you know, I, I consider this bochinche. I consider this gossip. I consider this just some fun, interesting rumors that I believe in based on where I got it. But at the end of the day, it's still just a rumor. You know, I wasn't in the room. You know, I don't know exactly what was said or how it was said. All I know is how it was characterized to me. And the way it was character, characterized to me makes a lot of sense when you pay attention to the particulars and when you look at the timeline and when you realize how the chips kind of fall into place, you realize, wow, he was out since January of 2017 and he was a trooper and he dealt with all of this behind the scenes crap 
and went through with the reshoots and dealt with the results of the theatrical cut and did all this stuff knowing full well that he was gone already. I just, to me, that's, I find that stuff very interesting. Um, and by the way, speaking of like Batman and, and, and scoops and, and reports of that nature, it's interesting that the person you may want to follow the most for information on the Batman isn't any of us scooper types. No, definitely not, not me. Definitely not, you know, anyone else from all the other sites. The person you're going to want to follow is Matt Reeves himself. Because you remember a couple weeks ago when he kind of did that Q&A on Twitter and he was just answering fairly off the cuff a lot of big questions? You know, that all kind of feeds into what I've been talking about for a while. I've been talking about it on this show. I've been talking about it on The Revengers. You know, over at DC Entertainment, especially under Walter Hamada, they want their stars and directors to be very interactive with fans. And they think it's a, it's a much cooler way to reveal news to have a star or a director do it than to fire off some sort of press release and let another site cover it, like a Variety or Deadline or THR. So that thing that Matt Reeves did, listen, I'm sure he did it organically. I'm sure he probably enjoyed doing it. But I've also, you know, I, I've been hearing repeatedly that the studio has been encouraging this sort of stuff, that they want the, the, the stars of this franchise, be it the actors, the directors, they want them to be the ambassadors for the brand. They think that's a better way to bring you the news. So I would not be surprised, by the way, if like the way we find out who's playing Batman is from Reeves himself, or the way we find out who the villain's going to be is from Reeves himself. You know, so just kind of keep an eye on that. You know, I'm, it, it's, it's something to keep in your back pocket because there seems to be an overall concerted effort to have all of these, all of this DC talent bring you the news and bring you the big cool things themselves. Just like yesterday, by the way, yesterday, David F. Sandberg went on Twitter and he tweeted out a YouTube video of the Shazam theme. And all of a sudden now the Shazam theme is trending all over the place. And now people know the name of the composer. You know, people, it, it, people are talking about how reminiscent of the John Williams Superman theme is. Like, ordinarily, that theme song would have just been released on a soundtrack somewhere, and then some fans might have shared it, but it, you know, it, it would probably get lost in the shuffle. But since Sandberg presented it to us, everyone clicked on the link and listened to it, and now all of a sudden everyone's talking about the Shazam theme. You know, so it's just, it, it's a neat strategy. It's a cool way to share information and it gets people personally invested in the people who are running the DC universe, you know, the worlds of DC. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there too, that I would not be at all surprised if we get a lot of our biggest news and updates directly from Mr. Reeves himself or someone else who will be revealed to, uh, to be part of the production. You know, um, so yes, yeah, so and now slight pivot, but you know, this idea that we've been exploring here on the show of the slow moving reboot, you know, I kind of stole that. I kind of, you know, borrowed some of that terminology from the, from Bill Maher, who he talks about the slow moving coup. Uh, well, there's a slow moving reboot that's been going on for, you know, at this point, close to three years. Isn't it crazy to think, by the way, right now we are in, what is this? This is March of 2019, and a lot of this craziness began over three years ago, roughly in like, you know, 
January, February of 2016, when test audiences weren't really digging BVS. And then the studio began to began this process of slowly undoing a lot of what they had set in motion and re kind of, you know, reshaping and redirecting where, 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 the, where the plans were headed. It's been three years now. Um, but on the theme of this slow moving, you know, reboot, the slow moving coup, which by the way, it's, it's sneaky how they've done it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's tricky if you think about it, because more often than not, when there's a reboot, you know, it's kind of obvious. It happens. You could tell from a trailer, you could tell from the way something is announced, like, oh, this is a clean break. And they knew they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to like shine a ton of spotlight on the fact that they were going to fundamentally change the way a lot of stuff was happening at DC, they just kind of subtly started making little nips and tucks ever since BVS was testing poorly. And now we're still kind of little by little figuring out what's staying and what's going. And I bring all this up because A, there's this rumor that Ezra Miller may be done as The Flash. And there's also these murmurs that have been around since San Diego Comic-Con 2018 that, um, hang on, just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, sorry. This is, you know, this is what happens when you do stuff like without a script or without notes, you're going off the top of your head. Anyway, so uh, in, in, in San Diego Comic-Con 2018, there, murmurs began that Wonder Woman 1984 was not going to be a sort of typical sequel and that in many ways, it's sort of retconning and fundamentally changing the cinematic DC canon that had already been established in BVS. So let's talk about those two things. On The Flash, I don't have like a ton to say because it's not my story. And all I can really say is that, yes, that there have been rumors behind the scenes Blowing up people's DMs amongst other reporter types and colleagues of mine that this week something happened and it looks like Ezra Miller may be out. And, you know, if that ends up being true, it's a real bummer. And it's a real sort of testament to like how, you know, how poorly they view Justice League's performance. Because if you recall earlier this year, there were reports that The Flash actually tested above all others in Justice League. That when they showed the theatrical cut of Justice League to test audiences, the character that everyone wanted to see followed up on the most was not Batman, was not Superman, was not Wonder Woman, was not even Aquaman, was not Cyborg. It was The Flash. And the fact that here we are now in, you know, fairly far into 2019 and there's still been no significant movement on the flash is astounding and i don't have answers for you as to why it's happening but it's very very telling that audiences told the studio we want the flash and the studio has been just completely unable to produce this flash movie and that tells me that they really want to put some distance between them and Justice League, which, by the way, may be one of the reasons why the Snyder Cut stuff is probably not going to happen for some time. And you know, I don't want to focus on that too much. But I think they're trying to put some distance between them and Justice League. Because if they felt that, okay, 
Justice League was a moderate hit and the most popular character is the Flash, so we should strike while the iron is hot. You better believe, if, you know, if they felt that way, we would have a Flash movie most of the way into production by now. But Justice League did so poorly in their eyes that even though Flash was the top interest in that movie, that still was not enough for them to light a fire under a Flash movie. To me, that's very sort of revealing, you know, and I don't know... You know, there were all those rumors two weeks ago, that whole thing where Ezra Miller was writing his own sort of darker version of the script alongside comic writer Grant Morrison, and that Daly and Goldstein, the directors who had been hired, had all had their own much lighter, almost sort of, I, I'm assuming, more Spider-Man homecoming in tone type of script, and that the two sides were at odds and that the studio would ultimately decide whose script to go with, and that if they don't like Ezra's script, that he's also probably gone. So if you believe this rumor that's going around, then if you're reading through the tea leaves, that means that they didn't like his script, and that they are indeed going to move on without him. Again, I'm not sharing that as a scoop. I'm not even saying it's necessarily true, but that is the rumor, and if it's true, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. It's very telling about what they thought of Justice League. And it's just another example of how nothing is sacred. They are slowly rebooting everything. It's just taking time. It's a soft reboot. You know, certain characters will stay. They're going to pick and choose things. But by and large, things are fundamentally changing. And it's going to be really weird in a few years' time to look back at Justice League and realize how much has changed since then. How Justice League really wasn't the start of an era. Because remember, the end was almost supposed to make it feel like the start. You know, you have Bruce Wayne kind of set, turning the old Wayne Manor into the Hall of Justice. And they're talking about, you know, the, the, the table that they're going to sit at and having room for more members and all this sort of stuff. Like, it's going to be crazy to go back and look at that and realize that wasn't really the beginning of something. That was the end of something. Um, and, you know, th th this all makes me think about, I think that's, th this entire thing, this entire situation with the slow-moving reboot, that must be what gave birth to the Flashpoint idea that came out a couple years ago. Because if you recall, around San Diego Comic-Con time of... I want to say 2016 or so, uh, they announced Flashpoint. They, they said it's no longer going to be the Flash movie. It's going to be Flashpoint. And I think, it's, I think it's because they wanted a movie that would explain all the changes. I could see Jeff Johns, Mr. Comic Book Brain Guy, who's thinking about, okay, well, what do we usually do when we need to reboot the comics? We create some sort of big event and we, you know, and we make the changes that happen after it part of that event and I think that's where Flashpoint came from because they they knew they knew from mid 2016 already that things are going to be very different after Justice League things are we're going to have to reset the table some of these characters will never be seen or heard from again and certain storylines are going to get completely altered so rather than do it in a clunky way where people are going hey wait a minute that's not what's supposed to happen you know they thought okay let's make a movie that will explain it. That will explain like maybe something happened in the past and now we're all on an alternate timeline where everyone is different. And I think that's where Flashpoint came from. 
I'm not bringing that up because I think they're going to make a Flashpoint movie. But it's just interesting while we're talking about Flash, while we're talking about the slow-moving reboot, is I think that's what Flashpoint was meant to be. But now let's talk a little bit about the movie that, you know, uh, was rumored to have its own Flashpoint-like event in it, uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Remember that rumor that came back a few months ago? Um, the YouTuber, Grace Randolph, I think her name is. Grace Randolph passed along this, you know, that she'd heard that maybe they were going to incorporate like Flashpoint or Flashpoint-like elements into Wonder Woman 1984 so that that movie was sort of pull, you know, kind of do what Flashpoint would have done had they ever actually made Flashpoint. And based on some details I got this week, you know, and I, and by the way, I defended Grace Randolph even back then. And I don't, I don't really, you know, we've met it a couple times at a few press screenings here in the city. Like we saw Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, but, and we spoke a little bit afterward, but I don't really like know her, know her like that. But I defended her scoop because, I mean, I don't know if, it, if she counts it as a scoop, you know, truth be told. I don't know what she considers herself. I don't watch her stuff. I just hear about her a lot. But I, I supported her theory or her rumor or her gossip because of what we're talking about today. Because I do think that the studio has toyed with the idea of creatively addressing all the changes that are coming. You know, I don't think they want to just flat out retcon and and just invalidate certain things that were said in the past they want to find a way to happen so that the older movies definitely still exist but so do these new movies you know it's almost like what abrams what jj abrams did with star trek remember when star trek when he rebooted star trek back in 09 he didn't act like those other movies never happened or that William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and all that, that whole continuity had never happened. What they did was they created a place in history where now things split off in a different direction. They created like a, a new fork in the road that created a new rift in the space-time continuum. Really geeky stuff, but you know. But they, you know, they, they made it so that these new Star Trek movies are set in an alternate timeline, but that in some other, you know, in some other dimension, on some other timeline, everything else still happened. And that's what Leonard Nimoy Spock represented. The fact that he survived what happened at the beginning of Star Trek was kind of part of their way of showing you, hey, you loved those old Star Trek movies? Well, they're still canon. This is just, we found a cool fork in the road and we're going to go in a new direction. But those things still happened. We're not taking those from you. And that's one of the things I loved about the Star Trek reboot, by the way. So I think that's kind of what they've been trying to figure out a way to do with the worlds of DC, with the DCEU. Trying to find a way to creatively address some sort of fork in the road, some sort of thing that takes place in the past that will now inexorably change the events that we've already seen. And those events still happen. We can still go see those movies. We're still going to have Gal Gadot and Jason Momoa around. We're still going to have certain staples from that era, but by and large, we're going to be on a new timeline now. So I think that's what they're doing. And what I, what it is about Wonder Woman 1984 that gets me thinking that is that apparently, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but some of this is out there already. So this is more just, let's consider this, you know, uh, fan casting or, or, or just me theorizing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a theory spiral, if you want to think of it that way. Because uh, none of this is exactly new. 
But apparently, you know, Pedro Pascal's character, <clears throat> uh, you know, he's playing Max Lord. You know, he has an ability to grant wishes. And they're going to explain all that. I don't want to, you know, like I said, I don't want to reveal too, too much. But he has this ability to grant wishes. And it's one of the subplots of the film is be careful what you wish for. So sometimes we do, you know, it, it's almost like that idea of like the butterfly effect of like, all right, if I do one thing, there's going to be ramifications that change everything afterward. And since this movie takes place 30 some odd years ago in the 80s, they're going to introduce something where Max Lord grants a wish, but then the person who got the wish realized that they made a big mistake because they got the thing they wanted. But in getting the thing you want, you also lose certain things or you, you, know, you alter things. It's very Back to the Future. Remember in Back to the Future 2, that whole thing where they were, you know, they were, they eventually returned to 1985, but it's not the same 1985. It's an alternate timeline because of one, you know, one person got greedy. You know, uh, Doc got greedy, or who was it? Marty got greedy, and he sold that sports almanac to old man Biff. And then old man Biff went to the past in 1955 and gave his younger self the sports almanac so that he could bet on stuff and be a wealthy man. So he did that, and when Marty and Doc returned to their home 1985, they realized now they're living in a world with a, a maniacal, rich Biff Tannen, and you know, and then everything's kind of gone to hell. So it's that same sort of idea of one character gets greedy, and they have to pay the price for it. And it happens a few times, it sounds like, throughout the movie, where the way Max Lord's dynamic operates is that, yes, he gives you the thing that you want, but he doesn't warn you of what might happen if he grants this wish for you. It's you know, so it's a very it's very much in that mold of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And in certain ways, you know, he grants Diana a wish that she ends up regretting and trying to to you know reverse. He grants Cheetah uh, the, the you know Kristen Wiig's character Cheetah a wish that goes a certain way at first and then she ultimately begins to regret there's this idea of like max lord is messing with things where he gives you something and he takes away another so with that in mind they could very easily have some sort of central event take place that is perhaps irreversible and that fundamental change puts the entire universe now on an alternate timeline where a lot of stuff plays out differently. So that's what I think is going on. And that's why when people were piling on Miss Randolph for saying that Wonder Woman 1984 might incorporate Flashpoint, they were piling on her because they thought she was being literal. They thought she was trying to say that like the Flash was going to be involved and or, or that Wonder Woman was suddenly going to develop the same powers as the Flash. You know, people can be very myopic and very close-minded when they want to attack someone. They can totally push all reason to the side. But as far as I can tell, Ms. Randolph was not suggesting that Flashpoint was being adapted into Wonder Woman 1984 or that Wonder Woman was suddenly the same as the Flash in Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns' eyes. No, that's not what she was saying. But she was trying to point out this idea that there's going to be something in the film that inexorably changes history. Now in Flashpoint, 
it's something that's so big, they had to go back and like reverse it entirely and almost try to undo it. At least that's what I understand in the comics. Here, I get the sense that there's going to be something that changes that will not be reversible. That, you, you know what I mean? Like, I, that, that, that's just the, that, that, that's the sense that I'm getting. That by the end of the film, we're going to walk out of it understanding that, wow, everything's different from this point on. Kind of like, with, remember when we left Days of Future Past, the X-Men movie? How we realized through that storyline that, oh, this was their way of addressing certain things. This was their way of resetting the table after X-Men Origins Wolverine kind of tanked. After, um, what was the other big, like, they, didn't they have, oh, and after X3, The Last Stand had been a black eye. You know, the series was trying to find a way to, like, fix things and kind of fix the timeline because things had gotten kind of screwy. And that's why after First Class, they, you know, they went and they did this movie that involved time travel and it involved creating an alternate timeline. So I think Wonder Woman 1984, through some subtle way, through some, through some subtle machination will end up being what Days of Future Past was to X-Men and what Flashpoint, to a, to a certain extent, was to the comics. A new resetting point, a pivot point, very similar to what J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek. So that's what I think is going to happen because the, the most solid change that I've heard is that they are completely disregarding what was said in Batman v Superman. The thing about Diana being in hiding from humanity for a hundred years, for a century, ever since World War I, she's been hiding and then she's, she's summoned to come back into action by the arrival of Doomsday. They are completely disregarding that. In this movie, Wonder Woman is a public figure and she will be doing and in, in making saves and having scenes out in public in the 1980s, which is going to make her the first metahuman now. And by the way, they may even undo that later if, if they really do uh, that Supergirl movie and they set it in the 1970s the way they said, then maybe she'll become the first metahuman. But the point is, for now, from what I'm hearing, Wonder Woman will definitely be an out and proud superhero long before the events of Man of Steel and definitely during a period where she would be recognized and known and therefore what was said in BVS is now completely invalidated. That she has not been in hiding for a hundred years. She's been around. Like the end of the first Wonder Woman movie implied where she's here to help humanity for, you know, and, and that she's not hiding and that she would never turn her back on us again. They're continuing with that. And this idea of Wonder Woman has never not been with us. That the death of Steve Trevor inspired her to be humanity's champion. As opposed to what the BVS script had said, where Trevor's death and that loss made her hide from humanity for a hundred years. Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns have gone the other way with it. Then they made it more of an inspirational tale. So that's just something for you guys to kind of put into your pipes and smoke and think about uh, because, you know, I, I don't know the reason for the reshoots, by the way, or, or, or I don't know the full reason for the delay. I don't, I don't really buy what Charles Roven says or what Patty Jenkins has said or even what Gal Gadot has said about the reason they delayed it was so that it could come out in its original release window. I mean, maybe that's true. And I could understand from a business standpoint why it's true. 
And heck, you know, the, the, there will be less competition for it around that time. So I understand from a business standpoint, but I think there's more to it. This is just my gut. But I think that part of this extra time that they're giving it is to incorporate some of this stuff that we're talking about today to incorporate some sort of element into the storytelling that will then help this movie to usher in a new era of the worlds of DC without anyone asking questions. Similar to how very few people ask questions after Days of Future Past came and sort of reset the table for the X-Men franchise. That's what I think is up. And what I'm actually going to do now is give a bunch of you an opportunity to stop listening. Uh, no, literally, I, I'm going to take a little detour now. I, I got into, you know, the, I, I covered all of the big, heavy superhero geek stuff that I wanted to discuss today. And I'm about to shift my, my focus over into another form of entertainment that's a little more niche, a little more niche, depending on how you like to pronounce it. And that is professional wrestling. Because uh, I don't get to talk about it much, and I sense there's a boom on the way. And I want to talk about that for a sec. But before I do, those of you who are not into wrestling, if you've enjoyed the show up until now, thank you very much. I hope you'll let your friends know, and, and I hope you'll consider going and leaving me a, a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. You know I'll read it here on the show, and I will thank you profusely. Um, but yeah, for those, for those of you who aren't interested in professional wrestling... Now is the time to basically, you are done with episode 92 of The Fanboy, and thank you for listening. Now, for those of you who want to hear me talk some wrestling, you know, here's the funny thing. So I was the hardcorest of the hardcore wrestling fans for about 20 years, from about 1987 till about 2007, Wrestling was right up there with movies for me in terms of like the, the form of entertainment that really sparked my imagination and really made me excited. And then, you know, around 07, 08, 09, I just stopped following the, the, the product with any real frequency. And it became something that I just kind of kept in the periphery of my memory. If, or, or you know, if I happen to have some free time, maybe I'll jump on the pwtorch.com and try to see what's going on nowadays. But I've been really kind of out of the loop. And you know, it's a shame because it, 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 it's a form of entertainment that has meant so much to me for so long. You know, you got to understand wrestling goes back. You know, the, the, the interest in wrestling and in that type of conflict has existed for thousands of years. You know, it goes back to ancient times with gladiatorial battles and arenas. People love to see good versus evil. People love to see justice being doled out. People love to see freakish athletic human specimens doing things that boggle the mind. People find that stuff entertaining. And what's cool is now nobody has to die because of it. You know, back in the day, people would fight to the death in an arena and everyone would cheer. Or they'd get fed to lions, you know, and people would cheer. Now the fights are scripted. So it's, you know, for the people who think that like wrestling, oh, it's so barbaric. It's like, listen, this is scripted entertainment. It's just another type of entertainment that's been around forever and nobody's getting killed. There's no one getting fed to lions here. No one's getting ripped apart in front of 50,000 screaming fans like there were thousands of years ago. Now it's a couple of guys in tights pretending to hurt one another. So I think I think they've we we've limited the barbarism quite a bit. 
And to me, you know, there's just something primal and exciting about professional wrestling. And they, they, there's nothing quite like going to a live show. I used to go to every show in New York because I used to edit the column of the, uh, I, I, was, I forget if he was Daily News or New York Post. But here there was this guy who ran a nationwide column called The Slammer. And in his little, uh, what do you call it? His journalist picture next to his column, he'd be wearing this big, loose, like, luchador mask. And it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he followed it. And oddly enough, my stepmother was his editor. So sometimes she would bring me his columns and go, listen, I don't really follow wrestling. Can you look this over? And technically, you know, I'm the editor-in-chief of Revenge of the Fans now, but my first real editing experience on a, in a professional sense happened when I was like 18 or 19 years old when I was helping to edit the Slammers column for the Daily News or the New York Post, one of those two. I even wrote one in his place once Shortly after the, the, for the column that was due after 9-11, uh, he didn't, he wasn't up for writing it. So I wrote a column and it got published and I have the copies of it somewhere. But um, I bring this all up to say though, that he used to give me his press passes. Like he'd give them to my stepmother who would pass them down to me because they could tell that I was the very serious wrestling fan and he was more so just a guy doing this as a job. So I used to go to all of the things he would get invited to. Every house show event in New York, every pay-per-view in New York for about two years, I was there. I was there for the first ever Elimination Chamber match at Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden in 2002. I was there with Rob, actually, with Rob Marrera of the Play It Loudcast. We were there together and we got to sit in this press area and I got yelled at by John Cena and Randy Orton, who had yet to break out. They were still just these indie guys. And I remember, like, at some point, I'm there with Rob, and we're watching, you know, the Elimination Chamber. And I'm watching Shawn Michaels, by the way. This is his second match ever. And I was super excited, because he's my number one favorite wrestler of all time. And me and Rob are watching the pay-per-view take place. And at some point, I kind of glance back, and there are these two jacked young men sitting two rows behind us in shirts that are struggling to survive because these guys are like ripped. And I look and I'm like, Rob, that's Randy Orton and John Cena. And he didn't even really know who, like, I, I don't think he knew who Cena was because Cena hadn't really, you know, popped out just yet. And when I turned around to look at them, Cena was like, turn around, watch the match, turn around. And listen, I get it. I think it's because he didn't want me to call attention to him because there we're at Madison Square Garden with a lot of hardcore wrestling fans, people who may know him. So, you know, last thing he wants now is to become a distraction and a spectacle now with people flooding to come talk to him and Orton. So he yelled at me. But either way, that's just a funny little anecdote. Um, so, yeah, I used to really love this stuff. And then the product got really stale and I took it off my DVR and I just I really I disappeared. I, you know, this very important chapter in my life kind of came to a close for a very long time. And then something interesting happened in the middle of 2018. And that was I discovered a couple of really magnificent wrestling podcasts that slowly but surely pulled me back in big time. So first it was 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. And then I would hear them talk about that, talk about the the host, his name was Conrad Thompson, 
they would talk about his other show. Because while 83 Weeks was a one-on-one weekly podcast about Eric, you know, with Eric Bischoff, talking about the ins and outs of the Monday Night Wars and those 83 weeks where WCW actually beat WWF in the, in the head-to-head Monday Night ratings, they would reference the show that he did before this that's even bigger, that's also still running. It's a show called Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And I eventually started checking that out because the wait for 83 weeks, you know, that that's a long week when the show arrives on Monday and you've already listened to it by Monday at three. And now you're like, oh, I have to wait a week. And then I saw that there were like 170 episodes of the Bruce Pritchard show sitting there. So I'm like, you know what? Let me check this out. And now I love that one even more than 83 weeks. It's such a good show. And it talks about the eras that I was a huge fan of. What did I say? I said I was a fan from about 87 for about the next 20 years. And that lines up perfectly, coincidentally, mind you, but it lines up perfectly with Bruce Pritchard's tenure at the WWF because he joined them and he became Vince McMahon's like right-hand man in roughly 87, shortly after WrestleMania three. And he was with them until about 07, 08. So technically, he was there for all the highs and lows of my favorite WWF programming growing up. And then on 83 Weeks, I have Bischoff talking about those couple of years where I was suddenly paying a lot of attention to WCW from like 1996 through 2001. So it's really, it's cool to kind of have both sides of my wrestling fandom like explored every week in great insightful detail. And now I'm actually dying to go check them out on one of their live shows because Conrad Thompson, you know, they go around the country now where, you know, he does live shows with Bruce. He does live shows with Eric Bischoff. They, he does live shows with Tony Schiavone. And listen, guys, if you're wrestling fans and then you're not following Conrad Thompson's podcasts, you are missing out big time. But what's interesting to me here also is the way it all kind of factors in to the rise of AEW. AEW, All Elite Wrestling, which is run by Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks. And like the the whole thing kind of began as their sort of passion project. And last year they put together this epic indie pay-per-view called All In with like real production value and pyro and music. They had Stephen Amell from Arrow come and wrestle a match on the show. You know, he'd already wrestled for WWE when he he had a fight with Cody Rhodes back when Cody Rhodes was still there as, uh, what's his name, Stardust. Um, see, I've always kind of kept, you know, even when I wasn't a fan, I still kind of knew what was going on. But... During All In, you know, they had celebrities wrestling. They had all these other indie superstars mixed in with, like, you know, old WWF talent that hasn't been in the spotlight for a while, but it's just cool to reconnect with them. So from that, they la- they're launching AEW. And what's notable about that is the way Conrad Thompson is somewhat intimately related to the whole process. Because All In, that pay-per-view which helped launch what is going to be AEW, was launched at an event at a StarCast-like convention that Conrad Thompson helped to promote. 
So that's why it was it, it worked out so perfectly for AEW. They constructed this weekend of great entertainment for hardcore wrestling fans, especially people who are tired of the current stale corporate WWE product. They organized this phenomenal weekend for fans like me. And at the, the centerpiece of that weekend was the taping of the all-in pay-per-view. So while he may not be like helping to run the promotion, because that's not what he does, he's definitely helping to like draw eyeballs to AEW. And he's definitely involved with getting AEW off the ground. And that's a big deal because these podcasts, these ones that he does with Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff, they get millions of downloads a month. That is a very, very hardcore, very, very captive audience who's dying to support some new alternative programming, who miss the good old days, who want some sort of exciting alternative to WWE. And now through Conrad Thompson, getting guys like me out of mothballs and start following again, he's going to usher a lot of that energy towards AEW. And that's why to me, this is going to be the first time WWE has any kind of competition in about 18 years. Because while people like to talk about TNA, Impact Wrestling, people like to talk about Ring of Honor, for better or worse, you know, Ring of Honor and even Lucha Underground, you know, these are all, the, 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 they've got like a certain, you know, they've got indie cred, but for some reason they're just so like kind of closed off in their own little corners of the hardcore wrestling world that it's unlikely to cross over into the mainstream, meaning that it's unlikely to ever truly serve as any sort of competition for WWE. That's why Impact, even when they went head-to-head -head and they tried to do their own Monday night ratings war with Impact, it just kind of, it didn't, it fell flat. It looked like WCW light. It, it, it sprung up, by the way, within, I think, less than a year after WCW's demise. And it featured a bunch of old WCW talent and I think that's why TNA never really became that proper number two. Because it just looked like something that was born of the death of a of WCW. So it just looked like more of a failed idea, just with a different name. That's how it, you know, to me, that's how it sort of looked to people who were not really following closely. AEW is launching without that kind of baggage. It's launching at a time where mainstream wrestling fans have been forced to swallow WWE and nothing else for the last 18 years. And now that's why what AEW can do here is create some real powerful counter-programming. And something else that they're going to do that I think is different um, is they seem to be very much on the technology end of things. Remember what TNA Impact did when it first arrived? It tried to do this hokey thing with a pay-per-view every week, like a $10 pay-per-view every Wednesday because they didn't have a proper TV deal. And then there was all this stuff. You know, there have been all kinds of trials and tribulations over the year, over the years with Impact trying to get a steady, regular TV slot. And that's because they're still trying to do things the traditional way. And, and that's another reason why they'll never really compete with the WWE. Because in terms of traditional media, WWE has now had all this time to establish themselves as the only brand in wrestling that matters. So you're not going to beat them by trying to do what they do. 
You're going to beat them by trying to do something different. And AEW, being very technology savvy, they're going to be doing stuff through alternative methods. They're going to be, you know, there's going to be streaming stuff. They're, you're going to be able to watch their weekly shows or whatnot probably on an app on your phone or on the computer or on your Roku or your, you know, whatever you have, whatever your smart device, your smart TV is, there's probably going to be some app that's going to be loaded with all kinds of wrestling content and podcasts and all kinds of stuff that on there you'll also get to watch AEW. I think that's the kind of thing they're working on. It may take some time to get the money to do it, but the fact that they are being technology savvy, the fact that this is going to be a modern cutting edge business model of bringing AEW directly to the consumer as opposed to trying to ask the consumer to find some obscure channel on their cable network, I think that's another thing is going to give AEW a huge leg up. And another thing that gives them a huge leg up is how stagnant the WWE product has gotten over the years. A lot of wrestlers who feel stuck there, who feel like, I just, you know, I can't do this anymore. I can't do these promos where every single last word is scripted. I can't have some schmuck who doesn't know wrestling from a hole in the wall giving me storylines that completely contradict the type of character I think I should be playing. You know, superstars are getting exhausted from the WWE format, and they haven't had any other real place to go. With AEW, you got Cody Rhodes and you got the Young Bucks down there who like are saying, come here, guys, we will let you do you. We will, you know, we're, we're going to give you a place where wrestling can be fun again. And that's why you hear about all these people who are now starting to like defect to AEW. And that's exciting to me. Because remember, actually, I can't say remember, you don't, you weren't friends of mine 20 years ago. One of the things I loved the most during the Monday Night Wars were the defections, were like, who's going to jump ship from this company to another, and how will that company use that as part of building themselves up? I used to be fascinated by that, seeing seeing wrestlers swap from Raw to Nitro or Nitro to Raw, and, and the, the, the sort of the underhanded tactics between the companies and and seeing how the incoming wrestler might come in and talk trash about his former employer on the mic. And, you know, I used to love all that stuff. To me, that was part of what made it exciting. To me, that was part of what made it like must-see TV. I got to see who's going to defect this week. And the fact that a bunch of people are starting, I'm not going to, I have I don't have a list in front of me, but I've been paying attention these last couple months where lots of people are now viewing AEW as a viable alternative. So they're doing things like requesting their release. They're doing things like allowing their contracts to just quietly expire. I mean, these are things that were not happening a few years ago because people were desperate to keep those WWE jobs because they were really the only game in town. But AEW is really starting to seem like a viable alternative. And... You know, even like last night, and the reason this is so on my mind too is like there are these headlines now about how Goldust, you know, Dustin Runnels, uh, is is he's allowing his contract to expire. And listen, I know he's debunked it. I know he went on Twitter and he said this thing about like this is why I hate smart marks. It's all total BS. It's fabricated. I'm still under contract with WWE. I think he's working us because the reported details are. His contract expires 
in May, at the beginning of May. And at the end of May, AEW is hosting its second pay-per-view. It's called Double or Nothing. So what perfect timing would it be for Dustin Runnels, who has, by the way, in the past, he's gone on the record as saying that he wants AEW to succeed, not just because it's his brother Cody running it, but because he thinks it would be the best thing for the overall wrestling landscape. He thinks WWE needs competition. He thinks wrestlers need to have that that spirit of, of I you know, I need to work, and if you're not going to give me what I want, I, I have an alternative. And he thinks wrestlers deserve that real alternative. So he's already spoken in favor of AEW. And I think he's working us. Because one of the elements that they're really leaning into at All Elite Wrestling, which I really like, is that this idea of another royal family. Because, you know, we all talk about certain royal, you know, the McMahons are obviously, you know, the, the big, huge family. And now, you know, the, the Flairs now, because Charlotte's very big and she's the daughter of, of Rick. You know, the, there are a few wrestling sort of dynasties, right? But when Cody Rhodes came out at All In, his opening, like, video thing says, like, there's more than one royal family in wrestling. And... I think that's so cool because they're building on Dusty Rhodes' legacy, the American dream Dusty Rhodes who died a few years ago, who everyone loves. You've got to imagine, by the way, that he is smiling big time wherever he is right now, seeing his son be so pioneering and so enterprising, doing the Rhodes family name justice and building up the Rhodes name to mean something bigger. So this idea of wrestling has more than one royal family. So you have Cody Rhodes there, you have his wife. Now you bring in big brother Dustin, the veteran who's been at WWE for the last 25 years. And I think, this is now this is just me theorizing, but I think that line about how I hate smart marks, I wonder if, he, if he's gonna come in as a heel. He's gonna come in maybe as the older brother who's there to teach his young buck brother a lesson for trying to launch AEW. And he's maybe he's going to go after the smart marks in the audience, which is a brilliant move if that's what he does because AEW's fan base is all smart marks. It's all, all of us are people who read the dirt sheets. All of us are people who are listening to Conrad Thompson's podcast. We're all the people who take this stuff perhaps way too seriously than your mainstream casual wrestling fans. So if he comes in hot like that, cutting promos against smart marks and, 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 and making himself the heel older veteran brother here to beat up his young buck, younger, younger brother who's starting trying to launch this company, that could be a feud or a storyline to build a company around. You know, because I know Dustin Runnels is not, the, he's never been this A-list main eventer. But he's got respect, and he's got street cred, and hardcore fans respect the hell out of Goldust. Mainstream fans may just see him as this oddity, this funny, weird guy with all the funky makeup and all the weird, outlandish stuff he used to do, you know, back in the day. But to hardcore fans who know that that's Dusty's son, and that he's got this great work rate, and he's been so reliable, and his work has only gotten better the older he gets, we love Dustin Runnels. So if you have Dustin in there calling all the Marks losers and saying how much he hates us and you have him feuding against Cody Rhodes and you really lean into this storyline, 
This could be huge. This could shine a lot of spotlight. And on top of that, it's the Rhodes family. And they're trying to build up the Rhodes family as another one of the royal families in wrestling. So I just think there's a lot of exciting stuff on the way. And I think that we are on the precipice of a boom. And it's not just because AEW. It actually has to do with another part of this whole podcast thing I've been talking about. Because what's very notable is that Conrad and Bruce are now, yeah, Bruce Pritchard, now seem to be on opposite sides of this little war that's brewing. If, it, if, if you look at it the right way. And mind you, I'm still, I'm, I'm listening to the Pritchard podcast chronologically. So I'm not up to their current episodes. I'm still up in like episode 60. So they're still in like at the end of 2017. So I haven't heard the way they've been discussing AEW in recent weeks or months. I don't know the dynamic there. But what's notable is this. Conrad Thompson is definitely involved with AEW. He's been there for their press events. He's been there to make big announcements. He's kind of like the mascot for the big events that help promote AEW. But Bruce Pritchard, for the first time in nearly 10 years, is back at the WWE. And that is a big deal. Because if you know about his firing, and if you know about how close him and Vince McMahon once were, and how sort of unfortunate that falling out was. And if you know about the fact that Bruce is, you know, he's he's been kind of controversial on the podcast. He's, you know, he's done, he's kind of made a mockery of certain things and he does it lovingly. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that he's aired that I'm sure Vince McMahon would be like, you know, under normal circumstances would be quite furious that Bruce Pritchard's been out there talking about this stuff. And it's also notable that Bruce Pritchard thought he would never return, that they'd never want him back. Whenever they talk about the Hall of Fame on the podcast, you know, he points out that he'll never be invited and that he's always spoken as far as where I'm at in the show as of the end of 2017. The understanding was that he'd never work there again based on how things got between himself and Vince and Stephanie and Triple H and the new people sort of running WWE. So to me, the fact that McMahon has brought him back shows that something is changing behind the scenes. It shows that Vince is acknowledging that the product has gotten real stale under Stephanie and Triple H's watch these last 10 years. And that's why he's going, he's bringing back Bruce Pritchard, who for 20 years, listen, not all of his ideas were gold, and he'll admit that, but for 20 years, he was helping Vince come up with storylines. He was directing pay-per-views. He was producing segments. He was coming up with gimmicks for wrestlers. He was, you know, he was a big creative driving force for a lot of the best years in WWE. And he held all these other titles. He was the VP of Talent Relations for a little while before Jim Ross got the job. Like he was a very, very important figure. So for McMahon to basically let bygones be bygones and bring Bruce back into the fold. At the same time that some exciting things are happening on Raw, there was that cool storyline last month that almost brought me back in with the reunion of The Shield and the way they acknowledged that Dean Ambrose was looking to leave the company and, you know, possibly come to AEW, I think. Um, the fact that they are acknowledging... The, how do I put this? I don't want to get lost in the weeds here. I noticed, in other words, that within weeks, 
of Bruce Prichard being back at the WWE, the quality and the buzz around the show as we're heading into WrestleMania has already gotten much better. Within weeks of Bruce Prichard being back, there was the Shield reunion angle, which was super hot, and there was the angle where they brought back Batista to attack Ric Flair on his, 90, on his 70th birthday to set up a hot feud between Triple H and Dave Batista at WrestleMania. Now, I'm not saying that Pritchard came up with these ideas. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not listening to the podcast. Current, I, I don't know what the current episodes are, so maybe he's revealed what's his and what isn't. I don't know. But all I know is I don't think it's a coincidence that they brought back Pritchard. The storylines have gotten a little more intriguing, and they seem to be feeling the heat a little bit. They're starting to see wrestlers let their contracts expire and just try to leave. And you kind of get the sense that Vince is looking to shake things up. And again, not because AEW is going to be at WCW's level. Not because he really fears what this company who's had one pay-per-view is going to do to him. But you can tell that something's up. Because the, the ratings have been going down. Attendance has been going down. Listen, merchandise is going up. And they're still making money, especially because of the network and other stuff and the international business. But it's hard to ignore that stateside, the product has been be, has been becoming stale and stagnant. And Vince seems to be trying to turn that around in a big way, to, I, 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 in my mind, to counteract the rise of AEW. Because all you need now is for WWE to continue to sort of slowly deflate for the next year or two while AEW rises up with all of this exciting stuff they're working on. It would not be a good situation for WWE for that to happen. They don't want AEW to get big enough to where there's suddenly two companies for people to pay attention to. They want to be the monopoly. They want to be the standard bearer. So the idea of a Vince McMahon who feels somewhat cornered who now has to bring back his old trusted colleague, Bruce Pritchard, to try to reinvent and reinvigorate the product in the because on the horizon is a young, up-and-coming, and super exciting new company. To me, that plot line is very, very interesting. So I'm going to probably start watching the shows again. I put Raw back on my DVR last week. So I'm going to start following wrestling again. I want to try to get to an AEW show when they're eventually up here in New York. And, you know, you might see some more wrestling-related content on Revenge of the Fans. I'm trying to make that happen because I think we're on the verge of another boom. And, you know, and wrestling has always been cyclical. It's always taken some time, but it always gets very hot again. You know, there was the famous rock and wrestling era, the Hulkamania era in the late 80s. Then there was the Attitude Era, quote-unquote, and also the Monday Night Wars happening concurrently at the end of the 90s. And then there really hasn't been a boom since the late 90s because then WCW went out of business. And as soon as WWE became like the only game in town, the, the popularity slowly diminished. So it's been a long time, and I think we're about due for another boom, and I think it's on the way. So... Everyone, that about does it for episode 92 of the Fanboy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you listened for the whole thing, thank you very much. It means, you know, let me know, by the way, because let me know if you did, because I want to see how many people who check me out also follow wrestling so that I know if I could bring this topic up again in the future. And, you know, I'm never going to do like an episode that's entirely wrestling related because that's not what this show is. 
but I want to know if I kind of have the freedom to go there without losing 95% of you, you know? So if you enjoyed this, these last, you know, this last half hour of me kind of venturing into this wrestling territory, let me know. Because then, you know, I, I kind of would like to do it some more. Because like I said, there is some big stuff coming. But until then, everyone, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Thank you.